I guess I will talk a little bit about how ethics councils can improve clinical trials, and I think this will be relevant to you all. Um, of course, I think there's both types of errors. There are many ethical studies, thousands, hundreds of thousands, that we don't run, and we just don't get the information. So that's one failure. But the other failure is we run many trials that I think are deeply problematic. I'll give you some examples of that. Examples where I think the ethics committee, the IRB, could have caught it and could have said, we shouldn't do this study. In terms of background, my background is, I'm a practicing doctor. In the States, we do hematology and oncology. And I did hematology and oncology. My background is, I'm from just outside Chicago, which is in uh, Illinois. Um, I uh, did my medical school at University of Chicago, my residency in general medicine at Northwestern. Then I did hematology oncology at the National Institutes of Health in DC. Uh, I was on the faculty in Portland, Oregon for a few years. Now I work at University of California, San Francisco, where I'm a professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and also run a clinic. And I will tell you more about this by the end. Okay, so I was going to do one or two examples, depending on how much time we have, of clinical trials that were run that I think are problematic. And then I'll give you some tips on what to look for in every single clinical study, which I think uh, might be of help to you. All right, so who here heard me give this talk yesterday? Only one person, I think. Two people? All right, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm going to repeat some of it. All right, I like these examples, though. I think it's such a good example. Um, so, July 25th, 2019, I looked at the New England Journal of Medicine and I saw this new paper had come out. It's called Maintenance Olaparib for Germline BRCA Mutated Metastatic Pancreas Cancer. What does that mean? So we know there are some people with metastatic pancreas cancer that spread outside of the pancreas. Unfortunately, it's a terminal diagnosis. The best you can do is extend survival, but nothing you can do will cure the patient. And of the people with pancreas cancer, in the United States, we have about 40,000 people a year. Some of them have germline mutations in BRCA. That means you're born with the mutation from your, from your parents. And those mutations are, I think the most famous example is Angelina Jolie, or the risk of breast cancer goes up if you have BRCA mutations. It's maybe about 10% of all metastatic pancreas cancer patients. And a company called AstraZeneca is making Olaparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, which we think will work well in people with BRCA mutations because of the way in which DNA is repaired in these patients. I won't bore you with that explanation, but they think this pill, $12,000 a month medicine, will work well in this subset of people with pancreas cancer. All right, that's the premise of what they're doing here. So when I saw this paper, I opened my email, and in my email I had an email from STAT, which is a major news outlet in the US. And this is the quote about the paper. It says this, it says, it's unbelievable, said Baselga. It validates the principle we have been fighting for all these years, that even the most difficult disease, even the disease where you think you're not going to win, if you find the genetic vulnerability, if you find that, then those giants, they crumble. And I said, wow, that's quite a quote, you know? <laughs> well, sounds very good. The giants are crumbling. Pancreas cancer crumbling in front of us. Couldn't believe it. All right, we've got to read this. Now, this is a picture of myself and the person who made the quote. I also saw that my university, this is University of Chicago, where I went to medical school, they put out a press release because the lead author works there. And the press release, she says this, 
When we saw the progression-free survival data, my first reaction was a little scream of joy. We finally made real progress in the treatment of a subset of patients with pancreas cancer. So she's excited, screaming for joy. By the end of it, I'll be screaming, but we'll see. Okay. <laughs> okay, whenever I read an article, I always ask myself questions and try to figure out what they did. I don't read it cover to cover. If I read it cover to cover, I'll be asleep, which is probably what's gonna happen later today because I only slept for like one hour. Okay, so I ask myself, what did they do? Is the control arm what you would do in your practice if you weren't participating in this study? Okay, that's a key question. What's the primary endpoint of this study? Is it a clinical endpoint or a surrogate endpoint? And then what about other things like activity and efficacy? We'll get into this. Okay, so what did they do? In the POLO trial, they took patients with metastatic pancreas cancer. You had to have a germline BRCA mutation, okay, in all of the cells of the body, the BRCA mutation, and they give them the standard treatment for 16 weeks, which is a platinum-based treatment. We call it fulfirinox most commonly. They give it for 16 weeks, okay? And if your cancer does not get bigger, no evidence of progression after 16 weeks, you get randomized, three to two randomization, skewed randomization, to the new drug or sugar pill. Okay, this is the trial's premise. Four months of therapy, if the tumor doesn't get bigger, you can get Olaparib or sugar pill. Why do they do the skewed randomization? Companies always say they do it because it makes it more likely for people to sign up. If you had three to two is better than one to one, you know? Three to one is better than one to one. You're more likely to sign up. But actually, we have proven in a paper of ours that you're not actually more likely to sign up. So I don't understand why they do it. It just lowers power for no good reason, in my opinion. I don't really think skewed randomizations that's useful. All right. Is the control arm what you would have done? That's my first question. So in clinical practice, when I see pancreas cancer patient, I give them four months of therapy. They're doing well. Cancer's not getting bigger. Okay. Then I stop all therapy and give them sugar pill. Does I do that? No, I don't do that. No, I don't do that at all because I think that's a big problem. What I would do is I would continue the therapy indefinitely. That's how it was developed. It should never be stopped. Some people decide to reduce the therapy due to side effects, but typically you omit one of the drugs or two of the drugs and you keep the third, the 5-FU indefinitely. So the IRB has permitted the company to go into this population and stop all therapy and put them on sugar pill. That's a problem. That's beneath the US standard of care. It's beneath the global standard of care. I don't think a single person who accrued patients on this study would do this outside of the study. Nobody is stopping therapy outside of this randomized trial. Only in this randomized trial are they stopping therapy. Okay, so when I first started making this complaint, AstraZeneca said, look, we gave him four months of treatment, okay? Four months of treatment is actually pretty good. If you go back to the original pancreas cancer study, you find they don't get much more. They only get five months of treatment. Okay, this is the original study, fulfirinox versus gemcitabine. That fulfirinox means the platinum treatment. It's got oxaliplatin in it. And in the paper, it says the median number of treatment cycles given was 10. Each cycle is two weeks. So 10 for two weeks is five months. And in the trial, they enrolled people after four months of therapy. So they say, we're pretty close, you know? Four months, five months, no big deal, you know? We almost gave, the, we gave very close to the amount of therapy they should get. So it's okay to stop therapy because they've gotten about what you expect them to get. Okay, but there's one problem. This trial enrolled people from the day they had pancreas cancer. 
The Polo study only enrolled you if you did not have the cancer get worse in the first four months. So this five is the median cycle of everybody, but not the subgroup of people who didn't get worse in the first four months. Let me show you visually here. In this PFS figure, what it shows you is that about a third of the people have progression before four months. These people will never be included in the, full in the POLO study. The worst third of people. Their tumors are progressing too quickly. They're not eligible for POLO. The median amount of treatment given in the red curve is five months, but they should be looking at the median of the bottom portion of the curve, the bottom two thirds, the people who got four months of therapy without progression. And when you do that, it comes to seven months. So, you know, one would expect that they would get about seven months of treatment, not four. So that's one problem. The second problem is actually, this is not even the full story. This is for people with pancreas cancer, germline BRCA mutation or not, but the germline BRCA mutation patients are different. They're younger than the average age. You know, they actually can tolerate more therapy. They have longer overall survival. I calculate, and I won't tell you how I did it, but I calculate they should get 12 months of chemotherapy. And this trial only gives them four months of chemotherapy. Then it gives them sugar pill. But if they weren't in this study, they'd probably get 12 months of chemotherapy. So now I think there's a pretty big difference here. It's starting to become a problem. Okay. So whenever I read an article, I ask, what did they do? You know, new drug, three to two randomization, control arm what you do in practice, never. Oh no, I would never do it. If it was your own mother or father, you'd, you'd withdraw from the study. You wouldn't allow them to get sugar pill. I mean, it's just completely unethical. What's the primary endpoint of the study? In pancreas cancer, we care about two things, living longer, living better. The primary endpoint of the study could be overall survival, but it isn't. It's progression-free survival, progression-free survival. And this is, the, this is the figure that she said screamed in joy when she saw this, screaming, because as you can see, placebo had a PFS of 3.8 months, median, and olaparib 7.4 months. But to me, the sobering part is this, the end of the curve. Every single person has progression. There's nobody cured. Every single person has progression. This just, at best, delays the tumors getting bigger, okay? But it doesn't cure anybody. But that's the bit, that's what she's pointing at, she's screaming. Is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? Is this a measure of what people care about? Or is it a measure of something we can measure in the scanner? You know, is it clinical? Does it matter? Or is it merely a stand-in, like an A1C or cholesterol level? I guess you have to know what it is. What is this PFS? Anytime you enroll in the study, we measure the cancer at baseline. We have a diameter, a cross-sectional area, a volume. And PFS is a time to event endpoint. The time until one of four things happen. Just in cardiology, we have a major adverse cardiovascular events, MACE, time to event endpoint, composite. This is the same thing. One, the patient could pass away. If they die, then they have an endpoint, a PFS. Two, there's new lesions on the scan. The lungs had nothing. They would look like normal lungs. Three months later, they have lots of metastasis. That's progression. Three, the tumor gets bigger, but it has to get 120% bigger. 119% we call stable disease. 121% we say progression. But nobody walks around and say, I feel good, 118%. I feel fine, 119%. 121% they say, I feel terrible. It's, it's arbitrary. It's an arbitrary radiologic cutoff. It doesn't track with symptoms. That's progression. And then the fourth thing that could happen is the tumor gets smaller 
If it's more than 30% smaller, we call you a responder. You responded to therapy. And here progression is defined as 20% from the smallest it ever gets from the nadir value. Okay, so progression-free survival is the time until one of these four things happen, whichever comes first. We have a paper coming in Nature Abuse Clinical Oncology where we actually point out that very rarely, practically never, does the company tell you how much was number one, two, three, and four in the study. They don't break apart the endpoint. They just lump it together. And that's a problem, I think. We're not getting the data we need. Okay. So what about other things in this polo trial? You know, I told you already that I don't like that they stopped chemotherapy. I said I wouldn't stop it myself. I would keep giving it. I said that they probably wouldn't get four months. They wouldn't get five. They'd get 12 months of treatment if you were allowed to give the treatment. One thing I noticed in the polo study is this. This is from their own paper. It says the response rate. So this is the percentage of people whose tumor shrinks 30%, okay? How many people's tumor shrinks on the study medication? If you take Olaparib, which is a, you know, $12,000 a month AstraZeneca drug, 20% of people have the tumor shrink. I believe it. It's a cancer drug. It's doing something, it has side effects. Maybe it shrinks cancer, I don't know. If you take sugar pill, 10% of people have the tumor shrink. 10% of pancreas cancer patients have a tumor shrinking on sugar pill. Placebo, I don't know. I, I hear a lot about sugar and cancer, but I never hear that it can shrink cancer in one in 10 people. That's pretty impressive. Something's happening here. All right. I'm an old fashioned doctor. I like to look at the thing patients care about, how long you live, how well you live. If you look at how long you live in this study, it's actually published in the original manuscript, overall survival, the bottom plot. There's no difference in overall survival. This pill cannot even beat sugar pill. The overall survival is identical, 18 months. Also, why do you use PFS as a surrogate endpoint when you can directly measure the actual thing you care about? You're not saving any time. We already have the median OS is reached. You don't need a surrogate endpoint in this situation. You just measure overall survival and there's no benefit. Okay, health-related quality of life, now with multiple updates from this trial, no better. No quality of life better, survival's not better, but the PFS is there. So how do we put the facts together? You have this progression-free survival benefit, but you don't improve survival. Sugar pill is shrinking cancer a lot. You know, sugar pill is fighting pancreas cancer really well, 10%. I mean, half as good as the drug, amazing. Is that typical? Do we see that? Like, is that often the case? There's a paper by Ian Tanock from a few years ago. They took all the placebo arms of randomized studies in cancer, and they asked, how often does the control arm have a response? The tumors are shrinking. And the answer was 2.7% of people. 2%. Why is it not zero? It should be zero. 2% is the measurement error, the error of making the measurement of the tumor because measuring the tumor on the scan is like measuring a cloud between your fingers, not like measuring your height. It's not as objective as height. So it's supposed to be 2%, but it's 10%. That's four times higher than the measurement error. There's something going on here. Does anyone in the audience know why in this study, and Casper, you're not allowed to answer. <laughs> why in this study, the sugar pill shrink pancreas cancer four times higher than you'd expect? Does anyone know? Yes? The chemo was so 
Yes, he says the chemo is still working. The chemotherapy that you're not allowed to give in the study, that you stopped giving, that I told you I would never stop giving, it still is shrinking the tumor even though the patient is not getting it. And here you can see what they do in the study. They give the chemotherapy, then they measure the tumor, and then one side gets olaparib, one side gets sugar pill, and there's still the shrinkage. Shrinking a pancreas cancer is like moving a train down the tracks. You put your back into it and push, 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 it starts going, and when you let go, it still moves. It has an inertia to it. So imagine if instead of sugar pill in this study, the control arm was continue chemotherapy. Do I think the response rate would be 10%? There, I don't think so. Do I think it would be 20%? I don't think so. I think it would be 30% or 40%. I don't think Olaparib is a very expensive drug that doesn't improve survival. That's what the company wants you to think. I think it's a very expensive drug that is worse than giving more chemotherapy. It actually shortens survival. It's killing people because we're switching to something that's less effective than just giving chemotherapy. Proof that these people would do well with chemotherapy is they're still responding to the drug they're not allowed to get. Imagine you kept giving it. You'd shrink it way more. So this is, I think, a very bad study. I mean, really unethical. Uh, you halt a therapy that is normally never halted. You randomize people to a new, costly, toxic pill. It has side effects, or placebo. You measure PFS that is not a measure of what matters. Historically, it's never been accepted. Why? You don't need PFS in pancreas cancer. I already showed you the survival. You don't need a surrogate, endpoint. You don't improve survival. Quality of life is not better. So what does the US FDA do with this study? On the question of whether Olaparib had a favorable risk-benefit profile, they vote in favor seven to five. And the expert says the answer is heck yeah, because pancreas cancer's risk is ultimate. That's what they say, heck yeah. I don't think heck yeah. I, do, I don't think scream of joy. I don't think giants crumble. I think should the polo trial change clinical practice? We write, no way. I think it shouldn't even be, in it shouldn't even be an option. FDA and EMA should never have allowed the drug to come through. By having it as an option, people will live less because you're going to switch to this rather than continue chemotherapy. They shouldn't have allowed the study. Everybody in the control arm of the study was harmed. How does this study come to, how does this happen? You know, that's what I ask myself. Not only does it happen, the people who do the study are rewarded. They're getting promotions. They're getting, you know, New England Journal publication. They're getting citations. It's the exact opposite, I mean. The company's being rewarded. They make billions of dollars from this product. Okay. So the first thing you have to look for always when you read a randomized study is the control arm. Is it standard of care? I think in my experience, and we published a paper in uh, JAMA Oncology, we say 20% of cancer clinical trials use a control arm that is proven to be inferior at the time the study was started. Maybe another 10% it's proven to be inferior along the way. They just stick with it. I think that's way too high. This is just a, among FDA studies, FDA registration studies. The second thing is the endpoint. People care about living longer, living better. And so you should always make sure what happened to living longer, living better. Don't be captured by PFS or MRD or left ventricle, how it looks on the scan or cardiac output, how it looks on the monitor. These are not measures of what really matters to people. What about non-randomized studies? We're lucky in oncology we even got a randomized study. I mean, sometimes we get non-randomized studies in oncology. In fact, one third of EMA and FDA approvals in cancer, there's no control arm. 
We just gave the drug to people, this is what happened. Approve it. It's better than what would have happened. Really? How do they know that? This is one example. This is Ross 1 Crizotinib. This is a pill for a subset of people with lung cancer with a certain mutation. And they show you that the progression-free survival is shown here in the figure. And it's better than one would expect if one compares it to like anybody with lung cancer. Well, they don't do as well as this. And so you get a result like this and you say, that's pretty good. The FDA gave it full regular approval, no post-marketing commitments. It has total marketing authorization for ROS1. I was looking and I said, well, what would have happened to a ROS1 patient had you just given them chemotherapy? Do we know the answer? And I looked and I looked for like so long and I finally found one paper, Sloan Kettering. Lung cancer patients getting pemetrexid. This is old chemotherapy, old fashioned drugs like methotrexate. And there is a difference depending on which mutation you have. The ROS1 is shown in the orange or yellow and they do much better than people with RAS mutation. And then what I do is I super, uh, something you're not supposed to do, I superimpose the two curves and I show you that the new fancy pill and then the old chemo is really the same, I think, roughly. I'm not, I'm not gonna say one is better than the other. That's wrong, I think, statistically. I'm just gonna say they're in the same ballpark. I mean, they're not in a different ballpark, they're in the same ballpark. So why don't we have equipoise to do randomized controlled trial of chemo versus crizotinib in ROS1, measuring PFS, OS, and health-related quality of life? The US FDA says we don't have equipoise because we know the standard is so much worse. They have no basis for that statement. The standard is probably just the same, pretty close, actually. Why, not we, why don't we do a randomized study? Well, we got interested in this. We looked at every single drug approved by the FDA based on response rate. Let me put it another way. Every drug the FDA approves in cancer with no control arm. We just gave it to 60 people. We just gave it to 80 people. Here's your approval, EMA approval, FDA approval. Let the HTA figure out how much they're gonna pay for this drug. We looked at every one of those things. And for every drug, we went back in the literature to find if you didn't have the new drug, what drug would you give? I mean, doctor would have to try to come up with something. And how, what was the response rate of that drug? In the next figure I show you, there are blue bars and yellow bars. The blue bars are the new drug. The, yellow, the orange bars are the old drug. Okay, if the FDA is using this uncontrolled study, single arm study properly, the blue bars will be much bigger than the orange bars, okay? If there's equipoise to do randomized studies, it will be a mix. You'll hard to tell which is higher, blue or red, blue or orange. Okay, you ready? Here it is. So the blue is supposed to be way ahead because there's no equipoise to do randomized study. That's what FDA says. But as you can see, for every example, they're actually pretty comparable. Now, I don't want to say one is better than the other. I don't know without these are cross-trial comparisons, but they are roughly in the same ballpark. They're roughly in the same ballpark. If anything, I think orange is looking better, to be honest, in my mind. Okay, which is not the way it's supposed to be. So, I think FDA is wrong. There should be, like, they should not be allowing one-third of drugs coming to the U.S. market without a control arm. That's unethical. I mean, we have no idea if it's better than the available therapy at the time. We have no idea if it shortens life. It could even, some of these drugs could actually hasten death. We've seen many such drugs, including melflufen and maybe even belantamab. You know, I, I think it's a tie against Palmdex, but if belantamab went up against something real, it would probably shorten life. 
Okay, so in the polo study, we had a bad randomized study. Half, uh, but one third of the time, we, we have very, no randomized study. Okay, so what do you have to look for? Is the control arm standard of care? What's the endpoint? And if it's non-randomized, if you have no randomized data in a clinical study, the investigator says, we're just gonna give it to 50 people. You have to ask yourself why. Why can't you randomize? You have to look back and see, is there something else that you're, what would you have done to this person without this product? How well does that work? What's the response rate of that? Why can't you compare the two? And I think usually the explanation is lacking. Okay, one more thing to look for. Dose modification. Dose modification. Okay, what the heck? This is a paper by Timothy Olivier, who's in Geneva, Switzerland, who spent a year with us doing research, and he went back, published a lot of papers, maybe 30 papers. This is one. He took all the FDA studies, and he looked at dose modification. Okay, so they run this randomized control trial, and they send it to the IRB, and it looks good. They take serafinib, 400 milligrams BID, which is the standard therapy for liver cancer. No one will argue it's really the standard, you know, proper therapy. And they take a new drug, I think it's Esai, lenvantinib, and they randomize people to the two arms. Lenvantinib has a certain dose based on weight. Okay. And they actually run a non-inferiority study. I'll put that aside. If you have a side effect while taking the drug and you take serafinib, you have to lower the dose of serafinib. The first dose reduction for a side effect is a 50% dose. The second dose reduction is 25%, and then you stop it entirely. Okay, so I take serafinib, and my hands and feet ache. First thing the doctor does is they cut the dose in half. Second thing they do is they cut it to a quarter, and then the third thing they do is stop. Too much toxicity. In the company's arm, the first thing they do is they cut it to 67%, the second thing they do is they cut it to a third, and then the third thing they do is they cut it to 17% for the, tox so the same toxicity. So you can see already, at, even if the starting dose is balanced, every time you have a penalty for dose reduction, the penalty is steeper for the control medication than their medicine. They keep the dose of their medicine higher. In this disease, we believe that the higher you push the dose, the better. So having many, many small dose reductions is preferable, theoretically, to few large dose reductions. Then the next thing I see in the figure is how many people get the dose reduction. This would be a moot point if nobody's getting dose reduction, but 37% on Lenva and 38% are getting dose reductions in the study, okay? Dose reductions are not rare. You know, really four out of 10 people get dose reduction. It's a lot of dose reductions. And then the last thing we show you is the cumulative dose given to patients. Even though they have comparable rates of dose reduction, the serafinib has only 83% target dose and they get 88% target dose, probably because the step size is smaller. Okay, so what's the takeaway here? If you look at all the FDA studies, you find that there is often an imbalance that favors the new drug. In other words, the new drug gets the dose pushed up higher at every dose reduction stage. So what do you have to look for? Dose reduction schema. I could make, I could make the same drug, serafinib. I could make a new serafinib, exactly the same drug, just change the size of the pills, and instead of going 50% and a quarter, go 67%, 33%, 17%, and I bet I'll beat the old drug just by changing the dose size. So a company can come and they can say, I have a better molecule, 
but really it's just being held up by more clever dose reduction. So why does the IRB allow them to have these un unequal dose reduction schemes? It, it's a clear imbalance in the study design, and we've proven that it almost always favors the new arm. You know, it's not like, a, it's not like they're doing it at random, and sometimes they're the ones that pay the penalty. You know, it tends to go in their direction. Okay, so that's another thing we look for. All right, I'm gonna pause for a minute because we've got about 10, maybe 15 minutes left. I have another example of things to look for, but any questions so far? Am I going too fast? Sometimes, yesterday they told me I go too fast. Who's that? Yes, question. Yes, if you had to talk to the authors of these papers, yes. have you like a face-to-face conversation about this result in your situation? Yes, what do I say to the authors in these papers? So many things. One is they, um, okay. I, 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 <laughs> the first thing sometimes the authors say is that sometimes the author of the paper on New England Journal, they don't even know the paper that well. To be honest with you, in a discussion of one author running a randomized control trial of uh, uh, lymphoma, the author on a podcast does not know the stages that were enrolled in the study, the lead author. Okay, how do they not know that? They're not paying, it's not, they're not doing it. I mean, who did the study? The company drafted the protocol. The company wrote it. The medical writer wrote it. The medical writer and the statistician put it together. And the lead author may not know anything about it. Sometimes the lead author enrolled zero patients on the study. So sometimes you talk to the lead author and I might as well talk to the wall. They don't know anything. Really, I'm, that's not an exaggeration. They literally, I, I know more from reading than they know because they didn't even read it. So that's one. I mean, I have to be honest with you, that's the number one thing. Number two. Anytime you tell anybody that they did something wrong, from your child to your grandmother, you know, human beings' reaction is, you know, to be defensive. Number two is, no, I didn't do anything wrong. This is just the way it is. And because the study, you know, the control arm might not have been so good, but because of this, the drug is available to more people, so we're saving lives, you know, the sort of greater good argument. We allowed this study so we could bring the drug to market. If we did this study your way with chemotherapy, the trial would take years to keep going and keep going and going and going because the control arm does so well. You know, that's what they say. They say that sometimes. You know, it makes it easier to get the win. So the myeloma doctors, you want to ask a question? Okay, let me finish this thought. Okay, so then the myeloma doctors, there's all these studies in myeloma. Who does, who is the hematologist does myeloma? Okay, okay one person, okay. I mean, we, you know, these, the problem with the studies is that we prove three drugs is better than two drugs, but then they test three drugs against two drugs even though they know two drugs is obsolete. And I ask them, why do you keep doing this? You know two drugs is not as good as three. They say, well, it would just take too long and we have to get this approved for other people. So they all have these justifications. And then I think sometimes people don't know any better. I mean, I think lack of knowledge is one. And then the final thing I'd say is that doctors, we're trained in lots of things, but understanding trials? I don't think so. I don't think, I think somebody with a, a bachelor's degree who's motivated can outperform a doctor any day of the week. Like Casper, I think can outperform most doctors, to be honest. Yes? I was just wondering about the is, is that an agency, we, we usually hear that the FDA is very conservative. Would you say it's an agency full of unqualified people or do they have an agenda? Oh, good question. So the FDA, is it conservative? I think the FDA is in oncology. We'll talk about oncology. FDA is a big agency. Every division has their own rules. Uh, I think that historically they've been very conservative. From 1962 to 1992, it was the most conservative agency, I think, uh, globally. And very few products came through. From 2002 to 2022, it's been increasingly lax. 
We've published many papers showing the number of new surrogates they're accepting, et cetera. In oncology, there's one person at FDA who makes all the decisions. This person is a civil servant appointed. He has a certain worldview. His worldview is influenced by, I guess, the unfortunate fact that his own wife passed away of cancer. He wanted more options for her. And he's been quoted, this has been covered in the New York Times. He wants more options for people. The other thing is, the more he lowers the bar and lets cancer drugs come through, the more he is benefit. Because who, who is the person who oversees FDA? It's the politicians. And politicians are happy when the companies are happy. And the companies are happy when they get all the approvals and make a lot of money. In the US, if it's approved for cancer, you have to pay for it. We have to pay for it with our government. It cannot negotiate price. Okay, now you're asking the people who work at FDA, how come they don't you know, put up more of a fuss? I think many are very smart, but if you work at an agency and you know that 67% of the time, we publish this in British Medical Journal, that 67% of the time in seven years, I'm gonna leave FDA and I'm gonna go work for BMS or Novartis or Amgen. 67% of the time, I'm gonna work for the, other pers for the person I'm regulating. So do I want to tell AstraZeneca the polo trial no-go? I don't know, it's not in my best interest. And who is actually getting, who's happy if I deny it? Are the patient advocates happy? No. Is the company happy? No. Is the politician happy? No. Is the regulator happy? No. The only person happy is like some, you know, doctor who actually cares about this. The, even, you know, really. And you know, you all probably hear from many doctors who say, we just need to have this, I mean, this is what the people say at HTA. You know, the, the clinicians really want these as options. So I think, I mean, the whole system, I think, is fundamentally broken. The public is the one, you know, there's the old saying, which is that um, uh, a, a uh, small, invested minority can always overwhelm a large, disinterested majority. The industry is a small, motivated minority to capture more wealth, and the government and the people are a large, disinterested majority. And we can never defeat the industry because the average person, it's like one penny on your taxing, and you, know, you don't really care. You don't really want to spend all your time reading about all these things, they're so boring, you know? And so I think that that's why the industry has taken the whole space. Yes, question. All right, thank you. Yeah, when is a single arm trial useful to do? I'll come to you next. Okay, but the single arm trial useful to do? I mean, I think most of the, like 90% of the time the single arm trial, it should be randomized. Maybe 10% is useful. And what's the answer? The answer is effect size. If the effect size of the novel product is much, much better than the old one, you don't need a randomized study. For instance, there's no randomized study that, you know, anybody falling out of this window is gonna be broken their leg. You know, you know that's gonna happen. The effect size is huge. Um, we don't have that for these cancer drugs. I mean, people say things like, well, the response rate is very high. We can even take one example, CAR-T th CAR therapy. I think somebody's working on that. And um, all of the original, there's only like two or three published randomized studies. The, all the CAR-T is coming to market based on non-randomized data. Now, finally, we get randomized data, and one is a winner, one is a, not a negative study. But the point is that randomized data should have been the bar for approval in the beginning. Why put it on the market for five years on non-randomized data? Sometimes people say randomized trials take too long. We publish a paper, and we have another paper coming, where we estimate the time difference by randomization. And actually, one of the tricky things is when you do a non-randomized study, the only endpoint you can use in oncology is the response. You can't use PFS because there's nothing to compare it to. They're typically approved based on the fraction of people who respond. If you enroll 30 people a month or 10 people a month, the last month you enroll, you still have to wait many months to find the responders. 
Whereas in a randomized study, you keep randomizing every month, and overall survival is always accruing. And if you actually do sort of the math behind it, you'll find that once you get to settings where survival is less than a year, randomization is faster than response rate because you don't have to wait for the last people enrolled in the study to respond. It's actually kind of paradoxical. So in my opinion, I think, uh, I mean, I think that almost majority of single-arm studies should be randomized. And there is a comparator, and everyone is making up a reason why they don't want to do that. And the real reason they don't want to do that is easier to win if you're non-randomized. You guys think? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. The question is, what about the patient who consents? I think the patient is being lied to. I mean, imagine I was the one consenting to polo. This is what I tell the patient. I'd say, look, uh, there's this new study being run by the company, and we're going to take people whose tumor doesn't get bigger on the platinum therapy, and the company is going to randomize you three to two to the new pill. So the, I think the good thing is you won't have to get the infusion if you get that side, or sugar pill. The problem with that is that I would never do that. I would be very nervous to put you on sugar pill. Your cancer might grow very quickly. Um, probably much better to continue on chemotherapy. Unfortunately, that's not the control arm. Uh, I'm pretty worried about this study. Uh, in fact, I don't even know why they're opening it. You know, that's how I would do it. But they don't do it that way. Well, in the US, in many centers, including places that I've worked, every time the doctor puts the patient on the trial, they get paid cash, $1,000 cash, something like that. The doctor's incentivized to put the patient on the trial. I've seen doctors say to the patient, um, do, you, do you want to try this trial or have you given up? That kind of language. Yeah. I mean, that's the rhetoric you have. I think many of the doctors enrolling on the study don't know the limitations of the study. The patients certainly don't know it. The companies, let me put it another way. The university model in the United States, where does the money come from? Maybe 40 years ago, governments, we would tax the citizens of the, of the state and have university. Now, at a university, I work at the California public system. Uh, I have 0% of my salary guaranteed. I have to get my whole salary from grants or seeing patients. In a system like that, where the doctors, everybody, everybody working there has no salary guaranteed, the companies come and they can guarantee everyone's salary. I mean, they could, by running the trials, you get 5% of your salary on all these studies. The easiest way to have a career at university is to, in the US at least, just to run all the studies. So, I mean, I think it's entirely captured. And then the people running the university, they're making hand over fist revenue from running the trials. So they have no incentive to have good informed consent. I think informed consent should not be one doctor. It should be two doctors pro con. One person should go in and say why you should do the study, and then someone should go in and say why you shouldn't do the study. We don't get that. We only get somebody going in who's incentivized to put them on the study. I think it's a terrible system. Yeah. Yeah, maybe from Facebook, word of mouth through the doctor, the company's advertisements. Uh, yeah, they're not getting impartial material. Okay, other questions? Yeah, what should individual researchers do? I mean, one thing is, at least in the United States, I don't know about Danish medical society, the United States, all the medical societies are funded by pharmaceutical industry. They're not in Denmark. So that's one saving grace. But our ASCO, our ASH, majority funded by the industry. The, the conferences are funded by the industry. If the industry doesn't like you, you won't get to give the talk. That's one. Two. Um, uh, what can they do? I think the best thing we can do for junior doctors is to train them on how to read the papers and be critical appraisals of the evidence. I think medical training is, doesn't even get close to that. You take somebody who's very smart, you make them memorize things that they're never going to need to know again. For years they memorize. I don't even know all the parts of the knee. I don't care. You know, I don't even know what's in there. And they memorize all that and all the pathways and all the RNA polymerase and all this. Memorize, memorize, memorize for years. You basically take away anybody who is critical. I mean, the whole system strips you of that. It's all about hierarchy and obedience, I think. 
like the military. To survive and to do 10 years of medicine, you really select for obedient people. And then at the end, you ask them to be critical. It's too much to ask. So I think we should teach people statistics, teach people how to read the paper, to be critical of the paper. I think in the US and also in Denmark, I think that the company can individually detail the doctors. They can pay for their flights to conference and give them. And that's a ridiculous system. I mean, what, no, other, no other system allows that kind of kickback, really. You prescribe their product and they pay for you to go to conference, it looks like a kickback to me. I mean, it should be illegal. Uh, we have disclosure, that doesn't solve the problem because disclosure actually, if anything, makes you feel less guilty about what you've done. It doesn't actually eliminate the bias. I would ban all, I would ban all, all those conflicts of interest. I think the only people I don't blame that much is the industry itself because the industry to me is the tiger. And our job is, the tiger is going to be the tiger. We can't control it. We, we have to put the tiger in the cage. Uh, we've let the tiger run over all our institutions, it's particularly FDA and EMA. EMA approves everything FDA does. I mean, the, the overlap between EMA and FDA is almost identical. Um, only the HTAs push back. And then the biggest barrier, I think globally, is the US is such a large player. The US is putting 70% or 80% of the dollars in the space. So ultimately, everybody has to do what the US is setting, the agenda the US is setting. If the US cut their spending to 20% and all global players contributed more equally, you'd have more pushback. But the US has a system where we approve everything and pay for everything, and we just get worse and worse every year. Um, I, don't, I think it's un untenable, but I think that the best things one can do is to try to you know, draw attention to these problems. Yes? And I think that was uh, an amazing end to an absolutely amazing talk. And my understanding is that you have to rush out of here to I, oh, I, I can say that. Um, I will say, well, closing thought. <laughs> I guess I'd say, um, okay, every time I give a talk in Denmark, people tell me afterwards, there are lots of people in the audience who wanted to say something to you afterwards, but they were too shy to say something because they thought they'd waste your time or something. I'll tell you now, you're not wasting my time. You want to say something to me, I'll be here for 30 minutes or 40 minutes. You come up to me and say whatever you want to say, and uh, you can find me on... I have a YouTube channel where these are like, as, as, I, as, the, as there's a study, I'll cover it. And if you want me to cover a study, you'll see my email in the last one. This is a podcast that Casper knows well, Plenary Session, where we talk about some of these issues. And then you have questions. This is my email. You can always email me. I'm also on LinkedIn. I think you all, in US, we like Twitter. But here you like LinkedIn. So you can always find me that way. And I'll be here for probably another half hour or so before I go across town, so if anyone wants to talk to me. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Pleasure to be here. <laughs>